This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 8th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, staff writer Jocelyn Kaiser talks about a potential new mechanism for the spread of cancer. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First, we have a story on ancient supernovas. This is something we've talked about before. We are in constant danger from our neighbors. At any time, all life on Earth could just be wiped out by a nearby exploding star. What are the chances that this might happen, Dave? (laughs) Well, they're not that great. It's thought that a stellar explosion that could actually have lethal effects on Earth, happens about one and a half times every billion years. So that's a long time. That's much longer than we've been around, for sure. And it looks like this may have already happened to our planet. What evidence do we have that there was a nearby supernova? Well, when we say this may have already happened, we're not talking about a lethal event, but we're talking about a nearby supernova that it may have actually at least left its mark somehow on Earth. And the evidence that comes from this is that supernovas actually launch these very particular isotopes into space, and they can actually travel so far that they land on Earth, maybe even on the moon. And so scientists have spent some time trying to find evidence of these isotopes here on Earth. One of the papers out this week uses this isotope evidence to make claims about the history of supernova in the neighborhood. What kind of isotopes did they find? Where did they find them? And and what did they learn from the core samples? Right. Well, since the 1990s, researchers have been taking core samples from beneath the ocean, and they've been looking at an isotope called iron-60. This isotope has a half-life of 2.6 million years. What that basically means is it really hasn't been here. If they find it, it means that it really hasn't been here for that long. So this was all evidence of recent supernova activity, but scientists really weren't sure 
where the supernovas come from in the first place. In this newer study, these papers out this week, use iron isotope evidence, a lot more of it, to try to kind of figure out more about our history, our interactions with supernova. What did they find? Well, you know, they're looking at a lot more samples. And what they found is different signatures in different samples. And these signatures spanned a time period from about 1.7 to 3.2 million years ago. And because they're seeing different signatures within that time period, what it suggested to them is that there wasn't just one supernova event. There may have been multiple during this period. Another paper then said, well, let's try to find where in the sky are these explosions happening. How did they start that hunt? They modeled something called the local bubble, which is this region of hot, diffuse plasma in which the solar system currently resides. And their analysis suggests this bubble was created by somewhere between 14 and 20 supernovae. And further analysis uh, suggests that two of those supernovae were close enough and recent enough to have contributed to the Iron 60 signature that they're seeing in these samples. More specifically, they think the first happened about 2.3 million years ago and the second about 0.8 million years after that, so 800,000 years after that. And both were about 300 light years from Earth. Now that we have kind of a who, a where, and a when, (laughs) uh, what was going on here on Earth at the time that these explosions were happening? Well, you know, there's been this speculation, not only that supernovas, if they're close enough and powerful enough, could obliterate all life on Earth, but... If they're farther away, they could have more subtle effects. For example, particles from supernovae, some scientists have said, could increase cloud cover, which would cool the Earth's surface. And notably, when we're talking about this time period, this is a period when Earth cooled and moved from the so-called Pliocene period to the Pleistocene period. And this was a period of repeated ice ages. So the idea is that potentially these supernovae could have had an impact on Earth's climate and even the evolution of some organisms. Next up, we have a story on xenotransplantation. Every year in the U.S., 22 people die waiting for organ transplants. There just aren't enough organs coming into the donation system and getting to the right people in time. Scientists are working furiously to figure out the best way to get more organs. And it looks like the best donors might one day be non-human Where might these organs originate? Researchers have pinned a lot of their hopes on pigs just because the size of a lot of the organs is similar to ours. The problem with these organs, organs from any other animal, have always been rejection. What are some of the ways that this has been combated in the past? Well, you know, when you put an organ from another species into us, it really makes our immune system go crazy. And what you have is you have basically the immune system really starting to attack this organ. So in the past, researchers have tried ways to tamp down the immune system, but that comes with its own problems because if you're immunosuppressed, you're going to be open to infection. So you need to find that balance between keeping the immune system active, but preventing it from attacking these foreign organs. Right. And old tests, I think they mentioned in this paper, of putting an organ from one animal into another was on the order of minutes in length. And now there have been some more extensive long-term transplants. Can you talk about the one that they focus on in the story? Yeah, here they achieved a success rate of almost three years, which is pretty remarkable compared to some of the figures they had before. Now, they were taking organs out of a pig and putting it in a baboon. And they weren't actually replacing the baboon's hearts. They were actually 
planting it in the abdomen of the baboons. They wanted to see basically what their main thing was they're trying to figure out is not whether these hearts will work in the baboons, but how can they get the baboons to prevent rejecting these hearts? What are some of the approaches that they use to to set these record-breaking numbers? Well, the first thing they did is they used genetically engineered pigs. And these pigs lack a gene which creates a carbohydrate that typically, if it's on the blood vessels, really cause the human immune system to go crazy. And so that's one way of sort of helping the immune system of these baboons ignore the pig heart. The pigs were also modified genetically so that their hearts wouldn't cause the immune system of the host to ramp up blood clotting, which can be a particular problem with organ transplants. But with the baboons themselves, they were given an antibody that sort of blocks communication between the immune cells and what might be present on this foreign organ to sort of help tamp down the immune system, but in a way that was more specific to the transplanted organ, so you weren't sort of tamping down the entire immune system. But the last step of this experiment was to see whether the researchers could then draw down the amount of immunosuppression even further to see if ideally they could just stop suppressing the host immune system. But there's a reason that this was the last step. Right, yeah. They really wanted to see if they could wean the baboons off of this immune suppression regimen, and it turns out they couldn't. When they tried to do this, the baboons quickly rejected the hearts. So what this means is that this is sort of a promising way forward, but it really doesn't solve this problem of having to keep the immune system suppressed, which is really one of the major problems with organ transplantation because, yes, you've got that organ, but if you're immunosuppressed, you're just sort of opened up to a whole lot of other dangers. Lastly, we have a story on human sacrifice. So why did humans sacrifice each other? We're not talking about killing out of anger-induced violence, but planning ritualistic killings backed by the community. Looking back in time, there have been a lot of reasons that were explicitly stated for this type of killing. Right, Dave? Right. You know, the idea is is that, well, first of all, these killings were ostensibly meant to appease gods. But sort of a potential side benefit is if you're the one doing the killing or maybe even ordering the killing, that sort of gives you power because you've got the power to do that. People are listening to you. And so the question in this study was, does human sacrifice create stratification in society by separating the people that can order the killing from the people that are being killed? Where did the research here take place? Sacrifice is actually a really common thing in through all human societies a long time ago. Where did they focus here? Well, the researchers looked at 93 traditional Austronesian societies, and these are people who share all share a common ancestral language. They originated in Taiwan. They fanned out across the Indian and Pacific Oceans from Madagascar to Easter Island and as far south as New Zealand. And the researchers really wanted to see, well, how did these cultures evolve over time. And so they sort of constructed these trees, which showed how the cultures and the language evolved. And they combined that with the evidence they had about where and when human sacrifice arose in these societies. Right. So when they looked at the presence of human sacrifice, the presence of social stratification or social hierarchy, and then the group's place on this linguistic tree, what types of relationships did they did they find? Well, they found that the societies that had human sacrifice were more stratified than those that didn't. In fact, two-thirds of the highly stratified societies practiced human sacrifice compared with just one-quarter of egalitarian societies. And now this is where I ask my 
correlation question right. normally, but they actually seem to have an answer in the study. One of these things came first. Right. Their evidence shows that human sacrifice came first. So this is not a sort of question of, well, did the stratification cause the sacrifice or did the sacrifice cause the stratification? At least according to their evidence, it appears that sacrifice preceded stratification. I'm a little skeptical that we can definitively say that sacrifice came first. Is there anyone out there that agrees with me that this (laughs) might be tough to prove using this method? Well, the complication here is that a lot of these societies had interaction with each other. So it's sort of even if one had developed human sacrifice, it's hard to tell how that may have been passed culturally between these societies. And that really complicates the picture. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about how incorporating some viral genomes into our own in the past may have fast-tracked human evolution. Also a story with the counterintuitive result that actually talking to somebody about their political beliefs may actually change their mind. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about a controversial clinical trial that's hoping to curb pedophilia. Also a story about a killer fungus in bats that seems to be expanding. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. This week's special issue focuses on cancer metastasis, the migration of cancer cells from a primary tumor site to other parts of the body. This progression is when cancer can get very deadly, and much is being done to understand the how and the why of it. I spoke with Science Staff news writer Jocelyn Kaiser about her story on the potential role of exosomes in the spread of cancer. She starts out by explaining what exactly an exosome is. An exosome is like a little tiny bubble that buds off from the cell that has a membrane and has things inside it like proteins and RNA from the cell, but it's much, much smaller than the cell. And these vesicles are created by all kinds of cells, normal cells and unhealthy cells. Right. So it has a membrane like a cell, but pretty much anything could be inside of it? They contain proteins, RNA, and lipids. Those are the main things found inside them. And this all started, this connection of exosomes with cancer metastasis with one researcher making an observation. What did David Leiden notice about 10 years ago? So about 10 years ago, David Leiden was trying to figure out what was going on that led skin tumors to metastasize to the lungs. And he was looking at the lungs of mice to see, to look for signs of cancer starting to form there and noticed these little tiny red specks. And they weren't actually tumor cells. What they were were these tiny vesicles, he figured out, that came from the primary tumor that was in that animal. So they were the same color as the primary tumor, but they were too small to be cells from the tumor. They were actually, he figured out that they were actually these exosomes, these tiny vesicles that had butted off from the cancer cells. The cancer cells were stained one color, and when he looked at the lung, where they weren't supposed to be, there were little buds of those cancer cells. Right. Eventually, the cancer cells did turn up in the lungs, and he figured out that um, it seemed that the primary tumor cell, the main, the main tumor in the animal, was sending out these vesicles and sort of preparing the lungs for the arrival of the cells themselves. They're sort of like messengers that go to the, the lungs and prepare the tissue. Let's take one step back, actually. 
Can you talk about why metastasis is the bad guy here? Yeah. Okay, so metastasis is the process by which cancer spreads from the first tumor you get in your body to other organs. And it is the metastatic tumors that kill most people when they die from cancer, not the primary tumor. Well, since this first observation, many different types of experiments have been done to see if these little structures have a role in the spread of cancer. Can you walk us through some of those results? Well, some of the um, experiments involve taking exosomes from tumor cells that are growing in a dish and injecting them into a mouse and looking at what happens to the primary tumor. And it turns out that if an animal has been injected with exosomes from the same tumor cells that you are putting inside it, the exosomes seem to make the cancer more likely to spread. So it encourages the spread of cancer. Yeah. The other experiment that Leiden has done is he has looked at why it is that tumor cells go to only certain organs, like some types of cancer cells will go to the lungs, metastasize to the lungs, some types of breast cancer. Other kinds of cancer will only go to the bone or go to the bone first. And he figured out that there seem to be these molecules on these different types of exosomes that determine whether they will go, the cancer itself will metastasize to the lung or to the bone or to the brain. So how do these experiments that seem to indicate a role for exosomes in the spread of cancer fit with the currently accepted models of metastasis? So the more traditional model is that what happens is the main tumor, the primary tumor, sheds these tumor cells into the blood, and they find their way to some other organ, and they lodge in the organ, and they start to grow. They find a way to, to take root in that organ and do whatever they need to do to communicate with other cells to begin growing. But Leighton's view is that long before those tumor cells actually get there, these exosomes go to the organ where they're going to metastasize, and they do things to the tissue there to make it more hospitable to the tumor cells, so they'll grow there. He's also done experiments showing that if you could stop these exosomes, that you could stop the tumor from metastasizing. Mm -hmm. There's a more accepted version of this cancer spreading story. So there's been pushback on the exosome theory. What are some of the big objections? Yeah. Well, some of the objections have to do with the experiments that Leiden and others have done. One question is whether when you inject these exosomes into an animal and see what they do to the spread of cancer, whether that is really something that happens when the exosomes are produced in the animal by the tumor itself, which is a harder thing to study. So some people wonder, this is interesting, but is it really relevant to what actually happens in, a, in an animal with cancer? Mm -hmm. And then there have also been questions about some aspects of, of Leiden's experiments, whether he's done enough sort of backup experiments to show that what he says he's shown is not some sort of artifact or that it's a real result. Mm -hmm. But if exosomes do play a role, what might be the mechanism for laying the groundwork? How, do, how would it work? Yeah. The mechanism that Leiden and others have suggested is that these exosomes, the proteins and maybe the RNA inside them, is transferred to cells at the site where they go, and it changes the behavior of those cells. Like, the exosomes may give them a protein that makes these normal cells start to ask, act like tumor cells themselves or to produce some sort of protein that makes it easier for the tumor cells to grow in that tissue. Since this is still under debate, what kind of tests or experiments will kind of push this idea along or kill it for good? Well, there's a couple things going on that might help validate it. For one thing, one of Leiden's papers is being sort of examined by a project that's replicating a whole bunch of important cancer papers, key experiments from these cancer papers. It's called the Cancer Biology Reproducibility Project. And so some other lab is trying to 
redo some of his his key experiments in one of his papers. And if they aren't able to do that, that will raise more questions about his work. But if they are able to do it and get the same results, that will be validation. And how could this research, so again, if exosomes are validated as a route to metastasis, how could that be brought into the clinic? What kinds of targets or treatments could come out of this? So there's a couple of ways why this might be useful in the clinic. For one, you might be able to capture the exosomes in a person's blood and study them, analyze them, and figure out if their primary tumor is starting to metastasize. And a second thing you might be able to do is use some sort of drug to block the exosomes from the primary tumor using a drug to prevent the cancer from metastasizing. Jocelyn, thanks so much for talking with me. Good to be here. Jocelyn Kaiser is a staff writer here at Science. Her piece is part of a special package on cancer and metastasis in this week's issue. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.